There we go. Good. Now we're ready. So get your Bibles ready. Got your outlines ready to go. Okay, I'm going to read the passage and then uh, we'll, we'll pray after that. I have all this stuff in the way here. Let's pray or let's read. So we're in Matthew 27. Uh, we're now in verse 11 and we're going to read all the way through 26. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? This Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him in the middle of the trial. <laughs> I just love that. His wife sent word to him. Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted and kept on shouting and screaming out all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he, he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word, your word. Thank you for this account. So, uh, it just seems so familiar. We've heard this story over and over again. But uh, Lord, I pray that we would, again, I keep saying this with the familiar stories that we would slow down and think through and, and try to take ourselves back and to think of the impact of what is happening here. And we've got uh, 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 the governor, the representative of the mightiest empire of the time, and yet before him was the king of creation, the king of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So who was on trial? So, Lord, I, I pray that we would consider that and we would consider what we should do with this man, Jesus, who is called Christ. And, Lord, that you would uh, make us think about and evaluate ourselves and our responses in, in different situations when there's pressure to conform. And, uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us grow in all of our failures, pray, Lord, I thank you that that's not the end of the story, but you can help us learn and grow. And I pray that that would happen this morning, that we'd be challenged to consider you, Lord Jesus, in all that you say you are. Not what we think about you, but what the, what the Bible says about you, what you've claimed for yourself. And Lord, that we would uh, take this to heart 
And Lord, to, because of that, come out on the other end with a firmer commitment to know you, a firmer commitment to follow you, a firmer commitment to testify about you. So Lord, in all this, I just praise you for uh, just your, your willingness to go through all this, your willingness to, be, to face accusations, unjust accusations, false testimony, and to sit under such weak authority, you being the creator God, and yet you subjected yourself, you submitted and, and you, you humiliated yourself on purpose for our sake, for the mission of redemption. So Lord, I pray that we would remember this in this story and to, to consider and to ponder and to uh, just love you more, Lord. So open our eyes now as we walk through this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, again, the, the, this, is, this is literally probably about three hours before Jesus is going to be on the cross. You've got to remember, we've been, we've been taking time to walk through this, but he, on Wednesday was this crazy time. Of, he's on the Temple Mount where he's having this, these big debates in front of thousands of people. Do you remember how many people would show up in Jerusalem for the Passover feast? Do you remember how many I, th- I threw out there? Oh, yeah, there, yeah, 250,000, or actually more than that, could fit on the Temple Mount. But Jerusalem had swelled up to over 2 million people. So this little, Jerusalem's not that big, but this, during this time, according to historians, not, not the Bible, but Josephus and other historians, it would just swell. So when he's having these debates that we read here with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and Jesus humiliating, winning these debates, proving his brilliance, proving that he's the master of Torah, proving that he's the Messiah again and again, and their, their humiliation because it happened so publicly, well, of course it led to where we're at now. We just, last week we looked at he had a, a mockery of a trial before Caiaphas, the high priest. It was a, it was a, sentence, a, a sentencing awaiting a trial. The verdict was already in. They had decided much before. It was mockery. The high priest, the one who was supposed to be the epitome of righteousness in Israel, was the epitome of evil. He had the Messiah right in front of him. The Messiah who had proven it time and again for three years publicly. Thousands upon thousands of people would hear Jesus teach and see his miracles. He raised the dead a half a mile away at Bethany as a crow flies. Right there, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And yet, they didn't want to lose their power or their prestige. They're standing with the people, their place that Rome had granted them, rather than worship the king of kings. And now they bring him to, uh, to, to Pontius Pilate. He was the governor of the time. And again, this we have in Matthew, the, his his retelling of the story, and he left out some different tidbits. We actually have Jesus coming for Pontius, then going to Herod and coming back to Pontius, but Matthew boils it down to just this one scene. But this righteous Jesus is causing an uproar. The crowds, the religious leaders in Rome all have to deal with this man, but so do we. That's why I love what, what Pontius Pilate says this. He says, but Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? He knew what Jesus was called. And what was Christ? Was that his last name? No, it meant Messiah. 
It's the Greek word for Messiah. Messiah, the promised, the anointed one out of Psalms that said the one who's coming is the anointed one, the one chosen by God, the special one to deliver people, to be the Savior. Pilate was no fool, by the way. He's the procurator, the governor. He was the representative of Rome put there on purpose to make sure that this little tiny country under their rule wouldn't revolt and would keep bringing in the money, okay? So they, he was the representative of the mightiest empire of the time, right? And I, can you go to the next slide? So what you need to know about where, where uh, uh, what Pontius Pilate usually was, he usually was out on the coast. Jerusalem is about 15 miles inland, okay? And it's up high in the mountains. But on the coast where it's nice and cool, it was Caesarea Maritima. This is a city, uh, the area where he would have his, his regular place to stay and to you know, administer his, his governorship. But he would come to Jerusalem three times per year during their major feast when Jerusalem would just swell with people because he had to be there in case there was a major, major revolt and any kind of uprising because it almost always started at the temple. Right? The Jewish people, hey, we got to get rid of these oppressors. God is our king. We should be our own country. We got to be restored to the Davidic kind of kingdom, blah, blah, blah. It would all start there at the temple. So he would show up and go to the next slide. This is the Temple Mount. That part right there, that's called the Antonia Fortress. They actually, the fortress, that's where the, Rome, the Roman garrison would be, uh, you know, that's where they would stay. And there's a walkway that went all the way around where they can look in on all the people who are gathered there to make sure if they, there was an uprising, they would do something about it. Pilate knew who Jesus was. Later, when Paul is giving a defense, okay, probably about 25 years later, he said, he, in his defense, he says, this Jesus did not do things in secret. It was done publicly. Jesus was not some small figure. So Pilate knew what was going on. If you're a governor of a military power trying to keep people under control, do you think there's people out there, spies, you know, who are, who are giving you information? Well, of course he knew who this Jesus was. Okay, so again, when we get to see Pilate on the scene, he's not a novice to what's going on. He had, been, he had been the ruler here for at least four years. He started in A.D. 26, okay? He lasted to 36, and then he got, he got kicked out of his governorship by Rome because he could not keep under, things under control, and guess how he, he ends up dying? It's funny because he ends up committing suicide at the end of his life. Isn't it funny? Who else committed suicide for, yeah, Jesus, or Judas? So that's just to kind of give you a, 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 just a feel, just a little feel for what's going on. These are the mighty Romans. There's the, go to the next slide. So their empire, again, Huge empire, all the way from Britain and, and Spain, all the way over to Persia, okay? And you've got this little tiny country about that big, okay? Little tiny country, but this is one of the worst spots in the Roman Empire for revolts. So he's there in a hot spot. So Pilate is there, he's trying to maintain order. His role is to see justice play out, and he also is trying to appease the crowds, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But here's the deal, you can't do that with Jesus, you cannot please the world, appease people if you believe in Jesus. So that, that's what we're going to do right now is I want you to, uh, to notice what this, who this Jesus is. Because in our culture, 
All right? There is a certain picture of Jesus. I was talking to a friend recently, a non-Christian friend, and he says, yeah, I believe there's, yeah, I think there's a God, but I believe he's a God of love, not a God of any kind of punishments. And, and I, I didn't debate him or anything, just wanted an open conversation with him, open that door, and we will prayer proof, you know, hopefully in the future. But I, I want you to know that, that there's something very unique about this Jesus. And I know that most of you know this, but I want us to go through the scriptural uh, passages that show us so distinctly. I got this actually from a teaching I did with my junior hires way back in the day, comparing Jehovah's Witnesses' version of Jesus and the biblical version, because they say Jesus is not God. So I want us to see this. Hopefully it's helpful to you, all right? So who is this Jesus called the Christ, all right? Jesus, first of all, he tells us he's God. You go to the next slide? There we go. So Jesus tells us he's God. God, in Isaiah 44, 6, says he's the first and the last. And then it says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. That's Isaiah. Okay, so he claims the title, I am the first and I am the last. Jesus tells us he is the first and the last. That, and because of that, he's claiming the title of God. All right, Revelations 22, 12 through 13. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha, which means in Greek, the first and the Omega, the last. Oh, he says it again, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He says it three times, three different ways. He also says it in Revelations 1, 17 through 18, Revelations 2, 8. Listen to this last one, Revelations uh, 2.8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Okay? So who is the first and the last who died and came to life again? Does God the Father do that? No, Jesus did. Okay? <clears throat> Jesus claims to be first and the last, uh, the Alpha and Omega, coupled with this Isaiah 43 passage. Check this pe- Isaiah 43 passage out. Uh, 10 through 11, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. There's only one God, right? I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. So God in the Old Testament is claiming to be the only Savior. Well, what is Jesus called time and time and time again in the New Testament? The Savior. Wait, I thought that was a title God alone could claim. Yes, you're making the right connection. Jesus is claiming to be God when he says that. Just to make sure we get that we don't miss it, that God tells us another eight times in the next few chapters of Isaiah that he is the only God, our Savior, and the first and the last, exactly what Jesus claims about himself. Okay, I'm just, I just camped out on just that title, first and last. Jesus claimed it. The Old Testament says there's only one person who can claim that title, and it's God. Jesus claims it in the New Testament many times, so what does that make him? That makes him claim to be God, okay? So the reason I bring this up is that Jehovah's Witnesses and many people say Jesus never claimed to be God. I just gave you one thing. Him claiming the title, first and last, is his claim to be God. Last week before Caiaphas, when he said to Caiaphas, matter of fact, you know, when you see me next, 
I'll be coming on the clouds with power. I'm, I'm going to be seated at the right hand. Coming. He claimed two quotes out of Psalm 110 and Daniel 7. He claimed to be God in that passage, but now here's some more for you. He claims to be the Savior, the bringer of salvation. I already read the Isaiah 43 passage, but there's also Hosea 13.4. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. Jesus, he says, I'm the Savior. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Who's the Son of Man? It's Jesus, okay, one of his titles he claimed. Again, you can go to Daniel 7 and see that he's actually claiming deity by that, by that title. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. When it says that whoever believes in him, which him is he talking about? Himself, because he says the Son of Man, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him, Son of Man, may have eternal life. Whoa. He goes on to say, you all know this verse, maybe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In the Jewish mind, a son was not lesser than. We think of it that way. Oh, he's, the son is lesser. No, in the Jewish mind, the son had the same authority, the same power, the same nature. That'll make sense in another passage later. Just keep that in mind. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is claiming to be the Savior. The great I am, you guys remember that title, I am has sent me, that comes from Exodus where God says to Moses, then Moses said to God, if, if, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, hey, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Moses, God, you're sending me. They ask me who sent you. I have to give them your name. And he says, ah, good. Well, here's the name. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am the eternally existing one. Not I was, not I will be, it's I am. Always existed. That's that's the essence of what it is. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Okay? So Jesus, he tells the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were expert in what book? The Bible, the Torah. So when Jesus says this, they understand what he's saying. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, 2,000 years before my time, that's when he was talking to them, he said, I am. Did they understand what he was saying? Were they ignorant? No, they knew exactly what he was saying. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why would they pick up stones to throw at him? Were they just bullies? Blasphemy. And so we'll look in John 10, because they understand exactly what he's saying. Verse uh, 31 through 33. But the Jews picked up stones again, again, (laughs) to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you my many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So, the Jews of his time understood very clearly what he was claiming. Did they not? 
Okay, because there's many today who say, oh, they, he wasn't claiming to be God. Well, there's certain passages you can't rip out of the Bible that are there. They understood exactly what he was saying. He was claiming to be God. Jesus claims deity. And this is John 20, This is actually the passage just before where they want to stone him. He claims deity by his words, and then the apostles will repeat those claims to their dying breath. Again, I have to backtrack on that a little bit. So the apostles, what were they before? They weren't always called the apostles. What were they called before? The disciples. The disciples, what was their character in the face of pressure before when they were still called disciples? What was their character? Chickens, cowards, right? Wishy-washy, blah, blah, blah. Then afterwards, they're called the apostles. they, They got a different kind of title. They are still known as the 12, all right? But what was their character after the cross? Fearless. They went to their deaths proclaiming something about this rabbi. What did they proclaim? He is God, he's the only Savior, and he rose from the dead. Okay. So you're like, okay, that's, a, that's okay. They, a lot of people have said that kind of crazy stuff. But... What, what is it about them that helps back up that claim? They're willing to die for it. If you knew something was a lie, would you ever die for it? No. Now, if you were tricked into believing something by someone else, well, that's one thing. But these men claim to be eyewitnesses, and they went to their deaths, painful deaths. Every one of them, except for John, was killed for their faith. Martyrs, Peter, crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die like his Savior. Isn't that cool? I mean, well, it's not cool. You know what I mean? But that transformation, one of the key proofs that the resurrection really happened, that Jesus is truly God, is the transformation of the the apostles. Something happened. So when they make these claims, these claims that I'm going to show you here, I'm just giving a short smattering of them. They received it time and time again, and they went to their deaths saying this. So this is not just saying a nice little slogan, you know, love God, hate sin, and walking away. No, they, they paid the price for it. Like these people who just died in Nigeria for proclaiming Christ. Jesus, here, let's just listen, listen to his claim. <laughs> a man is saying this out loud. A man standing before you. Imagine this. I give, etern- I give them eternal life. He claims to be the giver of eternal life. Who can do that? Only God can. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Okay, so if you're a Christian, this is a great passage. If God has you in his hand, who can grab them away from you? No one. If you're in the hand of God, if you're a Christian, that's where you are. That's one of the descriptions. Who can take you away from God? No one, not even you. If you're truly a Christian, okay, just keep that in mind. Uh, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So if you're a Christian, who's guaranteeing your salvation? I see Jesus here and the Father. Wow, pretty cool. How about an assurance of salvation? Love it. But here's the key. Here's what he says at the end. I and the Father are one. Wow. So here's, I'll just read from Titus 
Okay, this is Titus. He's, he's one of the, he wasn't one of the apostles, but he was one of the guys who hung out with the apostles. But he says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, who? Jesus Christ. He's called God. A man, a Jewish man is calling another man God. That was their teaching all the way through. Peter, I'll just read 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of who? God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter called Jesus, his rabbi, God. Pretty cool. Jesus has the power to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins, right? Luke 5, 20 through 21. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but who? God alone. They understood his claims. And then he goes on to say to them, Oh, I see that you don't agree with me. Let me, tell, let me ask you something. What's easier for me to just say your sins are forgiven or to tell this man who's been paralyzed, who had to be lowered through the roof because he couldn't do anything at all? Is it, would it just be, what's easier, just to say something or to prove it by telling him to get up and walk? Well, let me show you. Just show you that both of these are easy for me. Hey, get up and walk. And what did this guy do? Paralyzed. Remember, what happens to your muscles when you get, uh, even when you get a cast on your leg for a while? It atrophies. He got up, he rolled up his mat, and he jumped up, and he ran away praising God. That's how utterly remarkable this miracle was. He forgave sins, and he did a miracle to prove he has the authority and power to forgive sins. But who can only forgive sins? God. See, again, yes, I know a lot of you have heard this, but I want you to know this all adds up. All this material adds up to the undeniable claim before anybody, Jesus is God. Now, well, let me just keep going. God tells us, I have to pass, I have to fast forward. There's so much more. If you ever want material on just, what are passages that you can walk through a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, or somebody who just wants to know more about Jesus and his claims to deity? I'll, you know, I'll give you this kind of stuff all the time. It's it, the, the, the amount of scripture where Jesus claims to be God or does acts that God alone could do or to receive worship. Who's only allowed to receive worship? God. Hey, the apostles, did you know that they were worshiped? Did you know people tried to worship and what did they do? Whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, don't worship us. It was, you know, Paul and Barnabas. They're like, hey, no, 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 don't worship us. We're creatures. But let me tell you about Jesus who you can worship, right? An angel. An angel was worshipped. And what did the, what did, that was actually the disciple John, the apostle John, in the book of Revelation. And what did the angel tell John? No, 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 no. I'm a creature just like you. Don't, don't worship me. But, but when Jesus, as an infant, did you know he was worshipped? When the Magi brought their gifts, as they worshipped him. Whoa. An infant was worshipped. Now, I love seeing these little, little Ray Ray, the little kids here. I would never worship one of them. <laughs> but these mighty men from Persia, these kingmakers, we talked about that at the beginning of our walk through Matthew a long time ago. They were the kingmakers of that part of the world. They came and worshipped an infant, bringing him gifts befitting a king. He was worshipped by a blind man he healed. He was worshipped by his disciples. He was worshipped by the Apostle John. He's worshipped in Revelation by angels and the 24 elders and all these. He's worshipped by all mankind in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. So make no mistake about it. Though Jesus was on trial in this passage we're looking at, yet we are on trial. 
Don't mistake that. Jesus is king. We are on trial. Just like Pilate was, the religious leaders, the crowds, his disciples, we're part of that scene. We're the ones who are on trial. What shall I do with this Jesus who is called the Christ? Right? And that's all to front load. This passage is simple. We're just going to walk through this passage simply. But I want you to hear what Paul said to the smartest men of his time. Athens, Mars Hill. Here's what he concluded his great sermon to them. You see it right there. The times of ignorance, he's telling, that word is where we get the word moron from. He's saying the times of your ignorance, you morons, God has overlooked in the past, but now he commands. When you guys give the gospel, did you know you are commanding people to repent and believe? You're not just saying, oh, you might want to. No, it's a command. God is commanding through the gospel for people to repent Because he has fixed a day, there's a coming day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who is this man? And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who is that man? Jesus, the only one person who rose from the dead. Jesus, like he claimed he would, his resurrection. There is a coming day of judgment for all mankind, and it's going to be, the judge is going to be Jesus Christ. That's why I keep telling you, the Jesus who came the first time, bringing mercy and compassion and forgiveness, when he comes the second time, there won't be time for that. There won't. When he comes again, it's to judge the living and the dead. So we got to, we have to do, we have a job to do, right? We have a job to do. Now, when they, these men at Athens, Mars Hill, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, hey, we will hear you again about this. We want to hear more, right? You can give the greatest sermon in the world, but it doesn't mean everyone will believe. Paul, was there a better preacher than Paul? I don't think so. Although he himself would say, I don't come with eloquent words, but he did come with the power of the Spirit. (laughs) But it's, you know, some people will will absolutely want to hear more, and some will reject you and mock you. So let's just walk through this trial quickly. It's not very complicated. Um, it's, it's pretty straightforward. So we'll look at the very first part, verses 11 through 14. But here we have the righteous Messiah who's on trial being treated as a rebel. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Again, the judge, he's the, this is the representative of Rome. He has the Roman power behind him, and he's acting as judge and jury. There is, no, he, there is no other jury to try to convince. He alone is the one with all that power, and he's on the judgment seat. Okay, I had a picture, but I'll just go right past it. Oh, was it before? Yeah, this is, I guess it's out of the Jesus film or what I saw a picture, but there's literally a seat called the Bema seat that, where he would, he would make pronouncements from the seat over an issue. And so he has, he's, he's acting as the judge, and the charge, what was he just, in last week's passage, what was the charge where they screamed, this man has committed blasphemy? Would the Romans kill him for that? No, they have to change, they have to, the, the Jews had to bring to Rome a charge that would stick, that they would kill him for, and it, would, it was easy, sedition. He's claiming to be king, but the, who is the only king in their mind, the Roman mind? Caesar. Right? So it's sedition. 
He's being charged with, with this. A religious charge just wouldn't work. He's a revolutionary. Oh, and by the way, we find out from John, he doesn't want, he, he doesn't want them to pay the taxes either. He says, I'm the king and you don't have to pay taxes to Rome. That's actually a lie, wasn't it? To render under Caesar what is Caesar's, we looked at that. He actually said, hey, pay, pay what's due to your taxes. And then Jesus said, when, when Pilate asked him that, he goes, well, you have said so. So he wasn't, he wasn't answering a charge or an accusation, was he? He's asked, are you the king of the Jews? So whenever Jesus is asked of his identity, we see him replying. But whenever there's accusations, what did Jesus do? He was silent. Why was he silent? Because he had nothing to say? How does he do in debates? He wins. <laughs> and there's no better lawyer. And by the way, what is Jesus' job right now? Right now, what is he doing? He's our lawyer, our advocate, our intercessor. Who wins every day for you and for me? He does. Okay, just a little side note there. But he's silent because here he is. He's just, he's fulfilling Isaiah 53 as a lamb that's brought before its shearers. He's going. He's the willing sacrifice. He's willing to come. And we're supposed to see all the, the, the arrayed evil against him in this scene. False accusations in the religious trial, false accusations in this trial, the one before Rome, and he's silent. Why? Because he goes willingly to the cross. Willingly. He wanted, he had a mission. His mission was not to be the ruler in Israel. His mission was to die, to conquer the greatest power there was. Isn't that awesome? He was the willing sacrifice because he loves us. Then Pilate said to him, don't you hear all these things they testify? But again, he gave no answer, not even to a single charge. And what was the response of the governor? He was amazed. He was amazed because he had offered no defense. And here's the deal. In a Roman trial, if you give no defense to answer the accusations, you are guilty. He's going, he hears, because here's the deal. We know from a few verses down, he, Pilate knew why they brought him, not because he was evil, but because, because he knew that they, were, they came out of envy that they brought him. He, it says that. Amazing. He tried to pass off, we find out, the responsibility because he does send him to Herod. But since, since Jesus was from Nazareth, Jesus from Nazareth, that was the area that Herod had his, uh, his kind of allotted uh, power. But Herod passed the baton back down to Pilate because, and Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. He hears the charges. And again, this is not new information. He knew about this Jesus. Okay? And, 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 but he won't render a righteous judgment. Because he should have. Because again, he is supposed to be the one who acts as judge. A judge is supposed to be impartial. We saw that about Caiaphas. As the high priest, he was supposed to judge the righteousness or the evil of this individual. And he chose to be evil himself. Pilate, even though he goes through all of his acts, we'll look at that in a second, he is being evil as well by rendering the verdict that he rendered. So verses 15 through 23. Now we see the righteous Messiah who's rejected. This crowd chooses an evil revolutionary. Okay, so now at the feast of the, gov the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd anyone the prisoner whom they wanted. That was actually what they did 
you know, around the Roman Empire, but especially here in Israel, to kind of a sign of, of goodwill towards you, you subjects. It's an act of condescension, all right? So he, he says, but who does he pick? A, a, a nice person who is falsely imprisoned? It says that he picked the notorious. That word actually means outstanding. So he was so evil, he was outstanding in what he was. So we have the righteous Jesus and the absolutely evil Barabbas. In Pilate's mind, again, he tried to pass the buck off to Herod. Herod, they don't want me to, he's innocent. Herod, well, yeah, he is, but you've got to take care of it. So he goes, okay, I'll use the custom to try to get them to be sweet. Because this crowd, Pilate knew what happened five days before. You guys heard of the triumphal entry? Do you think the Roman governor who was there with his forces overseeing the temple, by the way, from the, from the temple, you can see the Mount of Olives, and you can see the road that leads down that comes up. And it says that when Jesus came on the triumphant, it says that hundreds, thousands were with him coming down, and a huge multitude ran out of Jerusalem to go meet him. They're waving palm fronds, which was a Jewish custom that had happened 150 years before, welcoming Judas, or not Judas Maccabeus, the other one, his brother, as a conquering hero. So this is happening to Jesus. Do you think the Roman governor would know what was happening? It says that Jerusalem was stirred up and asking, who is this guy? Jerusalem itself. What's, the governor knew what's going on. The governor knew. And so he's thinking, hey, there's these crowds. I'm going to give them an easy choice because most of these crowds, they all, oh, they probably love Jesus. He was popular with the people. The religious leaders weren't popular. And they're the ones who are bringing charges against Jesus. Well, I'll bring out Barabbas, and I'll compare them to Jesus, and they'll make the right choice, right? Does that sound that sounds like what would happen? Well, <laughs> it backfired. Evil rebel, righteous Christ. <laughs> but here's the deal. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered it. He had, there was a clarity he knew their evil intentions. Oh, you guys see that? I did that up there. Did you see all the C's? I had fun with this one. He knew. He says, give him a compromise, but he knew what their evil intentions. It, well, he was not naive to this. And then it goes to this note. Verse 19 is such a contrast. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, that was the Bema seat, his wife sent word to him. I stopped when I was reading because imagine... He's got hundreds of screaming people in front of him, the religious leaders trying to force him to do something. He's got his men, his garrison, who are there to enforce the crowd. So he's sitting there in a very public, formal situation, and his wife sends word to him. Have you guys ever been in a meeting where your spouse, women too, when you're in a meeting, your spouse tries to interrupt, hey, you know what, you need to do something. What do you say? Or what do you think? Yes, dear, I'll be like, yeah, hold on, yes, hold on. Hundreds of thousands of people are involved in this probably. I love this. This is so real. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. What is her conclusion? He's righteous. Jesus comes out righteous again and again and again, despite all the accusations. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Okay, they took dreams very seriously back then. We don't know if this was God speaking on high, but she was so troubled and so shaken about who this Jesus was. She'd probably heard the stories too, heard of all he was doing, and all of a sudden he's standing in front of her husband, realizing he's being judged for his life. Maybe God did say, hey, you better warn him. I don't know. It doesn't say that. 
But she says, hey, have nothing to do with this guy. Do not let his blood be on you. You'd better pronounce him for what he is. Hmm. <laughs> I know, we should listen to rhymes. Yes, 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 yes. But while he's getting word from his wife, while he's getting this warning from his wife, it says this, Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. So then the governor comes back to him. He's, again, he said to them, which of the two do you want me to release? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with this Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And again, he's appealing. He knows that he's not, he's not guilty. He says, why? What evil has he done? And they shouted. That word means screaming continuously. All the more, let him be crucified. So the conclusion, the, uh, the collusion, I just wanted to use that word because it's been in our culture so much. But they, they got the crowds stirred up. And here's the deal. Someone, one of the commentators said, perhaps maybe this crowd might have been made up more of Jerusalemites. Or maybe it's from, from Jews from around the world who gathered. And maybe they didn't really know this Jesus very well. Because remember, Jesus spent most of his time where? Around Jerusalem or up in Nazareth? Galilee, that whole area. Galilee, Nazareth, Capernaum, that whole northern area. And what was the reputation of the north compared to Jerusalem and Judea? Oh, they're the unclean up there, right? So maybe they were going to say, you know, we're going to trust our religious leaders. Because remember, I tell you, they, they were famous in Israel, these religious leaders. Okay, they were known. They're part of the Sanhedrin. So maybe they, some of the crowd, that's why they were easily swayed. But regardless, that's what happened. Despite the obvious verdict of, of, of this Roman governor. And again, this was not, this was not a merciful. Pontius Pilate did not have the uh, reputation for being merciful. He did not. He had, he had had people killed. I mean, he was a tough ruler. You had to be to stay in your position. He was in it for 10 years. And yet his verdict over and over, this man's innocent. And the crowd kept calling for crucifixion. A painful, horrible death. And here's the deal. Deuteronomy says it, was, it would be a death that would condemn and curse Christ before God. That would be, that's what it says. So we have the righteous Messiah who's now condemned. He's treated as an evil criminal in verses 24 through 26. And again, Pilate's perspective. We saw that he was gaining nothing. He was trying to appease them. He was trying to pass it off and, you know, to get somebody to, to declare him innocent rather than himself. He, he, he showed he was, he was weak. His attempts weren't working. He wanted to appease the crowds because he had just had a right. When, matter of fact, he started off his whole governorship by making a big mistake. And a huge riot happened. And so he, he's, a, you know, he's even, we find out he was pressured. Hey, you don't want a riot to happen again. We might send word to Rome and tell on you. So he's being pressured. And so he was weak and he caved to the pressure. Despite what he knew to be true, he caved to the pressure. So he does this thing where he washes his hands. Right? I call it, I call it he, he, his clean conscience, it's rather, it's a, it's a dirty washing, isn't it? His action was a Jewish custom right out of De Deuteronomy 21.6. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. It was symbolic. We are innocent of what happened here. It was right out of Jewish law. So he takes their own custom. And using this, he passes the blame. 
But here's the deal. Before God, does he bear some blame? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because he didn't do what he could have done. All right? Now, was God in charge of all this? Yes. Was Jesus going through the process exactly how he knew it was going to? Absolutely. There's no mistaking of how it happened and why it happened, but there is responsibility on those who had interacted and were part of this process. Pilate's opinion, Jesus is innocent. He says, see to it yourselves. And what's so funny about that is that's the exact same phrase that what was said to Judas when he came to throw back, the, when he came to give back the money to try to, oh my goodness, you know, I, I, I should, Jesus is innocent. You know, don't do, he's being arrested. And they said, what is that to us? Right? See to it yourself. And then they took the money, they called it blood money. He says the same phrase to them. See to it yourself. Because I'm, 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 I'm innocent of this. No, you're not. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So Pilate's verdict, okay, he condemns their crowd and they accepted it. They recognized the judgment they recognize his blood be on us. You won't declare him guilty. You won't declare him innocent, but we'll take the blood. We'll take the blame. All right? By the way, this is so important to note, this is not ever to be used for anti-Semitism. His blood be on us and on our children. This is not God's curse on all Jews everywhere of all time. This is not the curse on all Jews of that time. Right? Because who, who was the first church? Who were the, the, Jesus was a Jew. The apostles were all Jewish. The first decade was almost 99.9% Jewish. The first decades was the vast majority was Jewish. This is a Jewish faith. We believe in the Jewish Messiah who claimed to be God. And he becomes, he is the God of all creation. But don't forget this. This is a Jewish faith. There is no place for anti-Semitism. No place if you're anti-Semitic, let's talk, and we need to repent of that, okay? And the only reason I bring this up is that over the last 2,000 years, there has been such ugly things done by Christians in the name of Christ, as some of them I call so-called Christians, killing thousands upon thousands of Jews in the name of Jesus Christ. Oh, my goodness. It makes me want to vomit. Many, there's a saying that says when Jews who aren't Christians see a cross, they don't see a, something of mercy and redemption. You know what they see? A sword. Because of how many over the history. And I'm not, I'm not saying that we need to go and ask for forgiveness, and all, but we need, to be, we need to recognize that that has happened. May we be people of, a, of the Jewish Messiah who is merciful, right? Okay, I wanted to say that because that ha I hear that sometimes in the church. Not this church, but oh my goodness, it makes me so mad. But then he condemns, Pilate condemns Jesus Christ. He, he listens to their call. He's been brutally treated already by Caiaphas and the soldiers, and now he's scourged. And what is the scourging? It's a, it, there's a, it's a whip, cat of nine tails, with pieces of, of metal and glass in these leather straps, and it, they would whip him and rip. It's to soften him up for the crucifixion so he wouldn't last long. By his wounds we are healed, right? He's bringing salvation. He was his body was beaten for us. And when he's led away to be crucified, going to the cross, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is being led to his slaughter. And that's what we'll look at in the following weeks. So what? I've been saying it all along. What 
will you, what do I do with this man who is Jesus called the Christ? Followers, what will you do? Because this is the important part. When the pressure to conform to culture, to contradict Christ, to cast aside his claims as being the sole savior and redeemer and judge, what will you do? Our culture is increasingly going against what God has said in his word. That's going to be more and more. You know, we've been in a very unique time in history here in America. Very unique. Religious freedom, but it's, it's, we're losing ground. And to, to disagree with that, your, your head is in the sand. <laughs> and let's talk, and we'll talk. Because we can't be naive to the suffering that's going to come. We see advances all the time, we, we, you know, gaining background, but don't be naive, right? Things are going to get worse. But the question is, do you believe in a God who's strong enough to get you through it? Do you? So, is Jesus God? So what will you do with this man? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for their patience with my long sermon. But God, we do pray that this would be clear and our hearts would be full of conviction that you, Jesus, are God and that we need you for salvation and we need you for everyday living and we need your strength to be bold for you. Help us to be a bold people not yelling at people about you, but to be firm in our convictions that you are God, the only way of salvation, and you provide hope and help and forgiveness and mercy and compassion and eternal life. Help us to be very clear about that, Lord. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.